0: Another generation grew up Who knew neither God Nor what he had done for the children of Israel You know how a generation grows up And doesn't know God And doesn't know what he can do for his people Because another generation stops talking about it Now, now let me explain something really quick One of my greatest friends in all my uh, in all my life And in all the world Was my grandfather My grandfather just passed Not this last uh, July, but the year before. He was 96 years old. I would just sit there and I would just listen to him talk. I just wanted to hear wisdom. He would give me little nuggets that would say like, Jamie, live above saying I'm sorry. That meant, don't do things you're going to have to say you're sorry for later. He He would always tell me, you know, be on time. Because you may not be wasting your time. You may be wasting somebody else's time. And time is the most valuable thing a person has. So my grandpa would tell me stories. He was in World War II. I mean, he just would tell me stories. He would tell me things like during the Depression, he started farming so that he could feed his entire neighborhood. And he kept that, that little one-acre lot uh, full of, of produce, corn, watermelon, squash, cucumbers, uh, until he was 92 years old and he could no longer push uh, pu- push a hoe or, or, or pull a weed. But I will tell you this. My grandfather taught me a lot. And so, I want us, over the next few nights, we're going to begin to share some brief testimonies about what God's done in your life. Because the reality is, this generation needs to know about it. Because if they don't hear about it, they're going to miss it. And they're going to stop, they're, they're going to think that God doesn't do those things anymore. How many of you know God still heals, God still saves, and God still delivers? Amen? And so, if you're a senior saint... I just need two people that would just, I'll come to you with a microphone, but if you're here and you say, God's done something in my life, and I want to share what God's done in my life, would you raise your hand real quick? Everybody put their hands in right here. This is, this is beautiful, okay? Would you share what God's done in your life, whether it be individually or together, and then you don't have to stand. You can sit there, okay?
1: Well, there have been so many. My, my testimony, is this, can you hear me? My testimony takes an hour. I'll just pick one thing. That sounds perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, here all, I'm here until Wednesday, so I'm good.
1: Okay, we were looking for a church body, where to live, and all that kind of thing. And I'd say, Lord, is this – we were in different states. I'd say, Lord, is this where you want us? And the and feeling of homesickness came over me. I said, that's not it. I'd say, Lord, is this where you want us? And, and I got these negative reactions all the time. So we came to Covington. We had never been here before, but we got snowed in. We stayed up in the, uh, above the dime store. My husband was trying to make a go of it at the dime store. My kids and I were staying above the dime store. So we were snowed in, and uh, I was sitting right back there the first Sunday, and I had strep throat, and I was sick as a dog. And I uh, tried to make frozen pizza in a frying pan that doesn't work, you know, electric fry pan, stuck, couldn't get it out. Anyway, so I, had, I was sick and Brother Alan said, is there anybody here sick? And I raised my hand and said, someone lay their hands on that woman back there. And uh, they did and, and uh, I was healed of the strep throat and I said, Lord, it would s- be so nice to sit in somebody's house and in a warm house because the heat was, had gone out there and, uh, and have a real meal. And the Herzogs came around and they said, would you like to join us for dinner? We don't have much, just a canned ham. And I said, thank you. That would be great. And then that night I was singing in the choir. So I was. uh,
0: (laughs) Amen. Amen for nice people, ain't it? A home-cooked meal can be a blessing. then. but God heals. Anybody else? Heals all and in the choir. So couldn't talk hardly, couldn't swallow, and then all of a sudden singing. Amen. Anybody else? Right back here. I'm going to come back here.
1: Okay. I grew up in Covington. This is my home church. And um, God gave me an adopted family I grew up in, and I love very much. And let's see. God protected me from taking me and my kids out of a very abusive um, husband that I had. And he. From eight years to now, I become a very strong, independent woman because of God. So that's 30.
0: Come on. Isn't that beautiful? Come on. Anybody else? I, I'm feeling generous. One more. Anybody else? Right here. Okay? You hold yours tomorrow, okay? You come back tomorrow and you're going to share it tomorrow.
1: I think everybody knows about my situation that I had a miracle healing from a lung disease. And the doctors didn't think I was going to make it, but I did. And he told my husband, he said, I don't think she's going to make it, but I did. And I give all the praise to God.
0: Praise God. Well, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad. Nothing like proving the devil wrong, by keep on living. Amen? Listen, I want to talk to you tonight. I'm going to come down. Is it all right if I come down to the floor and just do some teaching, preaching with you? This the, the next few nights, if you'll just if you'll hear my heart, the next few nights, I'm just going to be doing some talking about prayer. But we're not only going to just talk about it because talk is cheap. And we're also going to not only talk about it, we're going to practice it. So, again, tomorrow, it may be that we start out with worship. It may be that we start out with prayer. It may be that I tell you, to come in, sit down, shut up, and we're going to get into the word. OK, but we're going to we're going to spend the next few days praying. The one thing that I want you to do is, I want you tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to break, get a piece of paper, get a pen, and I want you to write down five things. Five things that are very personal to you, whether it be praying for a loved one, whether it be if you're sick in your body, or if you need a breakthrough, or you need direction, whatever it may be. And over the next three days, I want you to begin to pray for those five things. And as you begin to pray for them, please hear me. I've done this in multiple churches. We, we actually uh, had wrote this, this prayer curriculum. And what, what started was, is when we wrote this prayer curriculum, and it was called Prayer Journey, and basically it was, it was uh, some of you, if you've ever heard of Dr. Dick Eastman, he's the international president of Every Home for Christ. Dr. Dick Eastman wrote a book that I believe I'm in ministry to this day because of, and it was called The Hour That Changes the World. And it was, it was simply this, if you will spend one hour in prayer, one hour in prayer, watch what God will do. Isn't that what Jesus said? Could you not watch and pray for one hour? And what he did is he broke down 12, he made, he made a wheel and it had 12 spokes. And basically each one of those spokes had a thing like praise, uh, meditation, scripture praying, um, uh, petition, intercession, thanksgiving, singing. And it, what he said is if you'll spend five minutes in each one of these spokes, you'll have spent one hour in prayer. Now, he was also the type of person that when I had a meeting with him, he says, listen, Jamie, if you're going to teach this, please tell them not to set it a little egg timer and and pray until the egg timer goes off and then go into the next thing. He says, let them be free. This is just ideas, he says, because, listen, I spent four hours today and only got through the first three. And you're like going, dear God, help me. <laughs> but <clears throat> we wrote this. Um, and we practiced, we, we, we tried, let me not say practice, we, we tried it out at my home church. We were running about 1,300, and on Sunday nights, um, my pastor was very passionate about Sunday nights. I don't know about you. Sunday nights was where I gave my life back to the Lord. I got filled with the Holy Spirit on Sunday night. I was physically healed on a Sunday night. God restored my marriage on a Sunday night. I mean, Sunday nights are very personal and powerful to me. And what I told pastors, I said, listen, you have Sunday nights, what's it running? He said about 175. Now, Sunday night was more deep, Sunday night was a little bit more bent on prayer, and worship, and spending time in the altars, and so I said, listen, how does a church go from 1300 on Sunday morning, to 175 at Sunday night? And I said, "Let's can, can we do 10 weeks of prayer? Just 10 weeks of prayer, and the first one starting out with worship, and then we'll go into prayer, uh, into altars, and all these different things. And, over the course of 10 weeks, we watched it grow from our first night. Dr. Dick Eastman came in and spoke, and he pre- he preached on the prayer-driven life. And um, the purpose-driven prayer life is what he preached on. And there was 220-some people there. By the very last one, there were over 800. Now, this is the powerful thing. Every week, we were given testimonies of what God was doing through from week to week. So there was one guy that came in, and he was, he, he was, we were talking about praying and believing God for those things. And we'd pray for each other, and we were, we were standing in the gap. We were fasting, doing all these different things. Well, there was a guy that came in. He was about $40,000 in debt in his business. He owed, um, he had bills coming up that were going to add another $40,000. So he was 40000 in the hole. He was about to go another $40,000. He had absolutely no work, but he had about $120,000 that people owed him, and they refused to pay. They had owed him for six months or so, and they would not pay. Well, we prayed. He wasn't even a Christian. This is what's so awesome. He wasn't even a Christian. He just sat in the back and he says, all right, God, if you're real, then do this for me. And he came up and he says, listen, I'm I'm simply saying I believe that God is able to do this, but I'll give my life if he does. And he said, I just, I'm not tempting God. I'm not trying to test God. I'm just simply saying, God, I'm in business, but I need you to work. I said, okay, well, let's see what God does. We began to stand in the gap in one week on Sunday. That was Sunday night. On Sunday morning the next week, he walked in the door and he was smiling. I mean, you ever seen somebody with such a big smile? You can tell that they've got some, something they're happy about. He walks in, he's smiling from ear to ear, and he's like, Jamie, you're not going to believe this. He said, everyone that owed me a dime paid it all back within the week. He said, I had people hunting me down saying, hey, listen, i got a check for you. He said, over $120,000 came in in one week. He said, I paid off all my bills. And he says, and I had no work. He said, I have over eight months worth of work now. He says, where do I need to give my life? (laughs) I said, it sounds like you already have. I says, because I guarantee when God started working, you started realizing that it wasn't about the bills. It wasn't about the money. It was that God was serious because you became serious. We heard stories. I mean, we had marriages that would stand up and talk about how their marriages were on the brink of disaster. Divorce papers that they shredded in front of each other. Falling in love with each other again. People that were moved out away from each other. Moved back in and were, were, were going after God by, because they built family altars. Prayer works, guys. Prayer is a very powerful thing. It's one of the most intimate things a person can do for another person. Is pray for them. So tonight, um, I, I want us, I, I want you to write that list. Five people that I want you to do something. Daniel prayed morning, noon, and night for them. That doesn't mean he prayed all day. It meant that there were focused prayer times. I want you for those five. Those five lists or those five people on those lists for the next three days to spend three times a day praying praying for them. If they matter, you'll you'll spend. I'm not saying you have to spend thirty minutes on each one. I'm saying when you're at your lunch or whether you are at your desk or you're in the car first thing in the morning, grab that list and begin to pray and intercede. And let's watch what God will do in three days. Amen? God said this, test me. God is not afraid or intimidated by our requests. What moves the hand of God is our faithfulness and our consistency. I want to talk to you tonight about an altar. How many of you know an altar is not just this little wooden Plank that comes up here that we come up every once in a while, too An altar uh, 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 You'll hear me say this a few times tonight But an altar if you define it is an upraised platform Made out of wood metal or stone in which a sacrifice is laid So let me say it again It is an upraised platform Made out of wood metal and stone on which a sacrifice is laid Tonight I want to talk to you about altars Can I tell you that altars are some of the most phenomenal places that have shaped my life. It is on the altar that I dedicated my life to my bride. It is on the altar that I dedicated my children to the Lord. It is on an altar that I dedicated my life to the Lord. It is on an altar that I was healed, saved, delivered, and set free on. The altar is very important to me. But an altar is not just a little wooden bench that you come to in church. An altar is a place where an uh, an upraised platform where a sacrifice is laid. That could be in your home. That could be in your car. That could be wherever you're willing to lay a sacrifice and say, God, I mean business. See, an altar is a place to meet with God. Not a place to get, but a place to give. David in the scripture, if you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. David was known as a man after God's own heart. How many have ever heard that? David was known as a man after God's own heart. Now, please hear me. As the preacher, I, I want to know what it was that, that made David after God's own heart. What, what, what was that form? What was the things he was doing? But as a man of God, I wanted to be like that. I want, if God looks at me and he's going to talk about me, I want him to say, Jamie is a man after my own heart. And as I began to study this, I found out very clearly that it wasn't necessarily all the right things that David did. It was that David was after the heart of God. Because if you look at it, David screwed up a lot. David, a lot of of mistakes. David, David did things that should have cost him everything. But David was a man that was after the heart of God. In everything he would do, if he messed up, he would repent. He was constantly worshiping. He was constantly praising. He knew what God was able to do in spite of him. See, when you are after the heart of God, you will also take on the personality of God. When you're after the things of God, guess what? You'll take on the characteristics of God. And and that's what as the church body, if we are to be the church body, we are to be after the call, after the mission, after the personality of not us, but of God. One of the things that is it's one of my pet peeves with teenagers. There is nothing that ticks me off more when I hear than a teenager say, oh, I'm just doing me. Just doing you. That's ignorance. That's just pure Ignorance. That means I'm just going to do what I want, how I want, when I want, no matter what you have to say about it. But can I tell you, us as a church, a lot of times we go, listen, God, I'm just doing me. I'm just going to do what I want, how I feel. I, I, I watch teenagers on a regular basis. Please hear me. And this is not going to be a, a muscled message where I'm just beating up the church. That's not what this is about. This is to enforce the church. This is to empower the church. But I'll go to a camp or I'll go to a church. And during worship, I will see a teenager like this. And I'll go down the row and I'll find dad doing the exact same thing. And dad says, well, I'm just not emotional. But I'll watch him in football game or I watch him at a baseball game or a basketball game. I'll watch him as. See, there's some guys that are like, listen, I'm just not emotional. But they're fishermen and all of a sudden a fish bites and they're like, whoa. Wait a second. Every person in this room is emotional towards something. Something excites you. Something fires you up. Something begins to light that fuse inside of you. If you are not emotional, let me light your feet on fire and let's see how you respond. I guarantee you're not going to be like, oh, wow, that's hurting right now. It don't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your personality is. But in church, sometimes we just get this persona like, listen, I just am not like that. I'm not into raising my hands. I'm not into crying. I'm not into that. I can tell you a story of where my brother-in-law was not into that either. My brother-in-law was very calm, very complacent, very just sit in the back, go to church, drop his tithe in. I don't answer altars. I don't cry. I'm a man's man. Until his 16 year old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And we're standing there in the doctor's office, and the doctor says she has nine to 15 months and she will be dead. I watched a man start getting that way. Can I tell you, it's not that moment. That is not your moment to all of a sudden figure out I can be like this. It's not when you find out you're sick or you're losing a loved one or you're in the hospital or somebody is addicted. Can I tell you that we, we will answer an altar either to repair ourselves or prepare ourselves. Jesus said this. He says, he says, could you not watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation? You know what our problem is? We're great at answering the altar call after we fall into temptation. So when, when we answer an altar, it is not just to fix us. It is to prepare us. How many of you men know this? It is better to do preventative work to your car than repair your car. Because what happens is if you'll prevent the problem, then you don't have to face the problem when it happens. Because if you'll just prepare, listen, if you put oil in the car, it's easier to put a couple of quarts of oil in the car than to hear boom, 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 and the engine smoke and seize. <laughs> Among on somebody, right? When those rods go flying through that engine and you go, wait a second, an oil change was a lot cheaper than a complete motor change. But it's just pre- preventative. So therefore, let me explain a little bit about the altar before we get into this message. David was great at preparing himself until he became king, until he became dignified. And then it, become, it became, what does everybody else think? What will everybody else say? See, he was the type of person that when he first started his reign, it was, it was bringing in the, 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 the ark of God's presence, the ark of God's covenant coming into the city, and he danced out of his clothes, and his wife was upside in the window, upstairs in the window, saying, What are you doing? You're making a complete fool of yourself. And he says, Wait a second. I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing it for him. But all of a sudden later, he won't even worship. And as humility began to leave him, pride began to sink in. Why don't we worship? Why don't we cry? Why don't we raise our hands? Why don't we go to an altar? Is it about pride? Because pride will bring you low, it says. It says God hates. He, he, he literally uh, hates pride. And pride will stop us from God. So therefore, I, I just, I've just figured it in my heart. I, I don't need pride. Pride will curse me. So I need God, period, period. So I answer every altar call. Let me explain this right now. I answer absolutely every altar call. I've answered altar calls for women. I was at a women's conference, and, and when you're an evangelist, you'll speak at just about anything. I was an evangelist. They asked me to come and speak this, at this women's conference. I was the second person to speak, The lady was up there talking about emotions and talking about being discouraged and being depressed in women, da, da, da. And all of a sudden said, if you're a woman in this place and you're discouraged discouraged, and you need God to restore your emotions, get to this altar. I was the first one. I was like, God, I need help. And she's like, intercessors, we need some help. But I'm thinking in my mind, I've got a bride and I've got two little girls and they've even taken over my garage. God, I'm a mess. I need some help. Men are going huh? I was at a wedding conference, speaking second. Whenever God sets me up to speak second, I'm like, okay, God. God's going to mess with me today. I was at a med- marriage conference getting ready to speak second with my bride. And there was a couple, a pastor who had a moral failure. And God had he'd walked through restoration and brokenness, and God had completely restored his marriage. And they were up there talking about how that God can restore, but to prevent it, not to repair it. And so he says these words. He says, if you've ever struggled with an adulterous affair, you need to come to this altar right now. And I'm like, never have. Shelly, you? She goes, no, you? And I said, absolutely not. Let's go. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't ever want to. I don't ever want that struggle. So we went down the altar, and people are talking, going, Oh, that's Pastor Jamie. He travels a lot. (laughs) So before I got to the altar, in order for the altar call to be pure, I was going, God, kill him, but forgive me for thinking that. You know what's so crazy, though, is I will not let my life be dictated by what other people think. Because I only have one chance at this and I want my marriage to be successful and I want my children to be successful and I want my ministry to be successful and I cannot be hindered by what other people might think because at the end of the day, I have to climb into bed and deal with God. So one day I was sitting there in Oregon and I was getting ready to preach. I was I was I was I was heading towards Oregon. I was getting ready to preach, and all of a sudden, I thought, "Man, you know what? I haven't sat in a good service for a long time, and listened to the preaching, and I was able to respond to the altar without me preaching." So I said, "You know what?" I called my friend. I said, "Jason, hey, listen, Jason." is it all right if I skip out on Sunday morning, I just sit in service, maybe your dad can preach, because his dad was a senior pastor, and I'll just, I'll just answer the altar, and then we'll do, thir- uh, we'll do uh, Sunday night through Wednesday night, and he's like, that sounds good, let me talk to my dad, his dad called me immediately, he said, Jamie, great idea, I know exactly what I need to preach. So I'm sitting there on the altar during the worship, and I'm like, man, this is good, worship's going, I'm jumping, I'm just raising my hands, I look over at Jason, I said, dude, it is gonna be good in this place today. And I said, I'm going to be the first one at the altar. And he says, no, you won't. And I said, Jason, I promise you, you try to step in that altar, I will kick you, trip you, and beat you to the floor. We do this little thing, me and Thomas. The other day, he was standing in the altar, and I says, did you ever play Monopoly before? He says, yeah, why? And I says, what happens when you land on somebody else's property? I says, you owe me some rent for where you're standing right now. But I looked at Jason, and he was like, oh, I'm going to be the first one. I said, no, 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 Jason, let me explain. The Bible says wherever we place our feet, the Lord gives us the land. And I said, I'm already standing here. This is mine. So his pastor stands up, and we're having fun. It's, it's all in fun and games, but I'm serious. I'm going to be the first one at the altar. So I'm standing there. We're worshiping, and all of a sudden his dad comes up the microphone. He takes the microphone, says, everybody stand up. He starts weeping, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be so good. And he has everybody sit down, and for the next 45 minutes, he preaches against the sin homosexuality. And I'm sitting there, and he says, I need everybody to stand up. He talked about because he had a couple of deacons that were living in a homosexual lifestyle, and a guy had got radically saved and came out of that lifestyle and says, wait a second. Those guys right there, I see them at the bars that I hang out with. Is is it okay to continue this lifestyle is what he was asking and the pastor was going no so the pastor preaches against it he had already confronted the the deacons so he has everybody stand up he said if you've struggled with homosexuality God's going to break it off of your life but you need to step forward in the altar right now and I'm like shoot I'm like Jason go ahead And he said, you said you'd be first. Actually, you said that you already owned the ground. And I'm like, shut up. I hate you. And all of a sudden, the Lord's, and I mean, nobody's moving. There is this like awkward silence in the room. And Jason's like, go ahead and go. And I'm like, dude, don't touch me right now. just." And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to me and he says, you said you'd be first. And I said, but God, you ever said that? But God. I don't struggle with this. And he says, do you want to? Now, hold on a second, because this can be taken wrong. God doesn't lead us into temptation, but God pulled me out of sexual sin. And it says that instantly when God says, but do you want to? I realize it says a de- demon is cast out. It goes to the dry and arid conditions. It finds no place to rest. So it says to itself, I will go back to the person in which I was cast out. It goes to that person, finds it clean, swept, put in order, but empty. And he will go get seven worse so that that person is seven times worse off than before. And I realized if I didn't stay full of God and crush pride in my life and make no room for the enemy, that I could could offset this. And so what God was saying is, listen, Jamie, you don't get to choose which ones come back. And he says, but your pride can allow some things to come back that you never thought you would struggle with. And I said, but God, I don't want to struggle with this. And he said, answer the altar call. I'm like, I'm preaching tonight, God. And he says, I don't care. Deal with this so you don't have to deal with it later. I stepped forward, and I honestly thought I was like Carl Lewis taking a six-foot jump, and it ended up a six-inch step, and I fell on my face. And I began to cry out to God, God, thank you. That I'm not struggling with this, nor do I want to. But, Lord, would you help those who are. And I'm crying out to God. I'm answering the altar call. People start coming. I hear people all over. But this is not one of those altars where you're looking around. Your face is straight down. And I made sure I was the last one to leave. I got up. We went to lunch with the pastor. He's sitting there, and he says, Jamie, you need to tell me something. And I said, no, sir. (laughs) He said, why would you answer that altar call? And I says, because I have a rule. And I told them exactly what the Lord had spoke to me. He said, Jamie, you know what? I knew for a fact when you said that you needed to hear some preaching and you wanted to answer an altar call, I knew that God was going to do something in your life, but he was going to use you to begin to make a way for other people to come to the altar. He said there was over 150 people that followed you to that altar that day. I sat there and I went, God, may I just be a bridge that will lead people to you? It's not about how I feel. It's, yes, uncomfortable. But so was Isaac when he climbed as as a 30-year-old man climbing on an altar with his dad holding a knife above him. An altar is a place where we go to lay down our lives, not to just get salvation or get healing or to get feeling better. It is about laying our lives on the altar and saying, God, here is my life, every part of it. So here's David. And see, David was falling into Satan's trap. He starts, not only he starts his public stardom with killing Goliath, but now the mighty men that God had placed underneath his leadership have killed the giants of the land. Remember when David, he goes and gets the five smooth stones? You know why David got five stones? Because there were five giants in the land. And he was going to kill all of them, not just stop with the one. And he had this mentality, listen, if we're going to solve the problem, let's solve the problem. Let's not just stop and, and, and just enjoy or take a breath of air. Let's, let's really solve the problem. Let's deal with the situation. Let's fix the circumstances. Let's do this. And all of a sudden he only has to kill one and God raises up other mighty men to do the finishing task. And they killed all the giants of the land. But now here comes a problem. David's army now ranked as the most deadly. They were now the giants of the land. And watch what happens in, in First Chronicles chapter 21. See, what happens? Let me ask you this question before we get into this word. What would happen if you get all your breakthroughs and all your prayers instantly become answered? If you didn't struggle anymore, if you didn't have problems, where would you be? You'd have no need of God anymore. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, starting in verses 1. Father, I ask that you would lend unto me your voice for the next few moments as we get into this word. Jesus, have your way. And everybody said, Amen. First Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1, it says, Now Satan stood up. What's so crazy is when the, when the enemy and the, and, the, and the giants began to fall, Satan stood up. And not only did he stand up, he began to come after David. And he began to invoke him, and he began to, promote, to provoke him. And it says this, and he stood up against Israel and moved David to, an, to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me, that I may know how much it is. What he was really saying is, I want to know how many people are willing to die for me. And it goes on and it says, And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more then what they are, but my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why then does the Lord require this thing? Why should we cause, uh, be? A, why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word, however, prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and, and went throughout all of Israel and came back to Jerusalem. There, then Joab gave the sum of num, of the number of people to David. In all of Israel, there were 1,100,000 men that, could drew, that drew the sword. And, and uh, it says this, it says, and, and that was in Judah. And there were 470,000 men who drew the sword in Judea. And it says, but, when he, had, when, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them. For the king's word was, an, was abominable to Joab, and God was displeased with this thing as well. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now, I pray, take away this iniquity off of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. Something happens when God won't even talk to you no more. David is sitting there. Notice his words. He says, what I've done is stupid. But notice when he said that after he had done it. We know know a lot of the outcome of what we do, but we still do it anyway. And David decided to do it, and guess what? It turned the voice of God out of the ear of David. When God won't talk to you anymore because you refuse to listen to him, you're in danger. And it says that, that God spoke to Gad, David's seer. You know why God had to speak to David, why David had to have a seer? Because David stopped seeing. And it says... That he spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go tell David, saying, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself. Thus saith the Lord, I offer you three things, choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine, three months of being defeated by your foes with their swords of the enemies overtaking you, or else three days in the uh three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Please let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men fell dead. Now watch this. How many of you if you look at this, David you think David chose the right one. 3 years of famine, 3 months of being swept away in the hand by the hands of the enemy or 3 days in the hands of the Lord. How many of you think that he chose right? Think about it. Let me let me explain what he what he exposed by his answer. I fear man more than I fear God. says let me fall into the hands of God for his mercies are very great but do not let me fall into the hands of man you know what's so crazy is it says that 70 thousand men fell dead now if you were to picture this for a moment what men do you think fell dead at that moment the weaklings the sick or the warriors See, the warriors against the, the, the swords of the enemy at least had a fighting chance. But against God, they had no chance. Plague began to strike them. Weakness and sickness began to consume them. And they began to fall dead. And David's sitting there looking at all of his, his mighty men. He's looking at his warriors. He's looking at his, his, his army beginning to decrease. And it's all his fault. What happens when, when, when the, the commander-in-chief becomes the greatest enemy? Look, I'm going to talk on multiple levels tonight. This is not about pastor. This is about the fathers and the priests of the home. What happens when the men that are supposed to rule the, the, the home are the ones that are not ruling? What happens when the priests aren't doing their priestly duties? What happens when the parents are not allowing the, are, are not promoting the children into the presence of God by leading the way? Did not Paul say, follow me as I follow Christ? But are we as adults, as we are we as parents leading the way for our children to see us? Are we waking them in the midnight hour where we wake them up because they hear us praying? You know what's so crazy is, is I've talked to many, please hear me, Many PKs, many children at youth camps and conferences, and you tell them to pray and do devotions, and they're saying, Wait a second, devotions? What's that? Prayer? Prayer is a family. What do you mean? We have to pray too? Don't we just do that on Sundays? Because a generation above them has not led the way. See, I always say it this way. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. What he was really saying, follow me as we're going after Jesus. If I was the dying duck, you'd still see God. David made a decision. He became the, the Israel's greatest enemy. You know who your greatest enemy is? I don't care how old you are, I don't care. You know who your greatest enemy is? An enemy enemy you are. Not Satan in hell. Satan presents the thought. You're the one that makes it reality. Remember when Jesus was being led into the the wilderness to be tempted? Remember that? He was hungry. Now watch. It says that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But let me explain. Why was Jesus tempted? Because nothing nothing that can be trusted unless it's first tested. And so he was being tested and he had to approve. He had to show that he was one approved. He had to go through the very temptations that we went through. And he fasted for 40 days. And it says this, as his hunger returned to him, then came Satan. Satan knows exactly when your flesh starts growling again and says, I want the old ways back. And he comes and he begins to tempt you. And it says, it hurt his his physical stomach growling. And he says, if you are the son of man, turn these stones into Krispy Kreme donuts. Well, that's what New Jamie translation says. He said, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into rolls. And Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And all of a sudden he takes him to a place. And one translation says that, he says, bow down and worship me. And he says, no one, you should worship the Lord. Thy God only. Then all of a sudden it takes him into a very high place in the church, right? And he says, jump off. He says he's standing on the very temple court. He's standing on the very high height of the building. And he says, jump off. And he says, for surely God will give his angels charge over you. He was quoting scripture. Out of Psalms, he says, For surely God will give his angels charge over you, and you won't even strike your foot against a stone. And what does Jesus say? Do not test the Lord thy God. And what was happening is he was telling him to jump. You know why Satan had to ask Jesus to jump? Because he couldn't push him. You know why Satan has to ask you to keep jumping and keep on trying to promote, uh, provoke you that, Oh, you won't get hurt. Oh, this is no big deal. Nobody, no, nobody even knows. Nobody even sees. It's all right. You can do this. You deserve this. God will protect you. His mercy endures forever jump, why, because once you jump you have obeyed him instead of God and once you jump you've turned yourself over why do we keep on jumping and end up getting hurt and then blaming God Jesus said no, no, no no, I'm not jumping, I'm not jumping I love what Reinhardt Bunke said, he said it this way he said the problem with most men of God is they climb so high in the church so fast that by the time they get to the top they get dizzy and fall Listen, church, it's time to stop jumping. It's time to start resisting the enemy. And he will flee from you. And it says this, and he left Jesus for a season. See, what happens when the man in charge becomes Israel's biggest enemy? 70,000 men fell dead, all because of King David's ambition and, deci- and decisions. Who, who, who do you think fell? The weaklings? No, it was the warriors. Who, who did the angel of the Lord destroy? Men that had no fighting chance. And all of a sudden, these men are falling down dead. And what was David thinking? How could he have done this? With one decision, thousands of people fell dead. He had destroyed years of hard work. See, I see it every day. Affairs that destroy marriages, lies that destroy people. But why didn't David listen to Joab's warning? The same reason we don't listen to God's warning. Every day we make decisions that will impact the rest of our lives. There's a quote that says it this way. Do we not understand that what we do here echoes throughout eternity? See, that our decisions do not just affect us, but affect everyone around us. See, Jesus, or the Lord tells David, he says, you want to make decisions? Make decisions now. Choose. And David says, let me fall into the hands of God, for his mercies are great. Yeah, He made the right decision, but the problem was, is he feared man more than he feared God. And so his decision was based on his fear, not on his recognition of who God was. And all of a sudden he chooses and he sees 70,000 men falling dead. And the Lord spe- and the, the scripture goes on and it says this in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 15. And it says, And God God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying it, the Lord looked and, re- and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying it, It is enough! Now restrain your hand, and the angel of the Lord stood over the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. The angel of the Lord was sent to destroy, look at those words, he sent the angel of the Lord to destroy Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem? What was it known as? The city of David. Who lived in the Jerusalem? David and his family. And God sent an angel to destroy David. Isn't that crazy? But God's a God of mercy. Yes, God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath. And because of his law, God don't play. God will, it says in the scripture, God will not be mocked. He knew the consequences of his decisions and he made those decisions anyway. So God sends an angel the angel, it says, the angel of the Lord. And it has his sword, and it's swiping. And all of a sudden, as it gets to Jerusalem, he's standing over the threshing floor of Orna, and he has a sword. And with one swipe, all of Israel, or all of Jerusalem falls dead, including David and all his family, and all the mighty men. He destroys the kingdom of Israel at that moment. And as he's Uh, Has the sword here. He's about to go here. And all of a sudden the Lord says he sees it and relents. Another translation says he has compassion on it and screams, Enough! And the angel freezes over the threshing floor of Orna with the sword over Jerusalem. Let let me explain because this is all going to begin to take shape quickly about the altar. See it's in the midst of the calamity that the Lord has compassion. You know what compassion means? Compassion to find means I will take your place. So when when Jesus saw the sick, when he saw the blind man and it says he had compassion, what was he saying? I will take your place. When he saw the hungry, what did he say? He had compassion on them, and he said, you give them something to eat. What he was saying is, is, listen, I will take your place. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died for blindness. He died for hunger. He died for thirsting. He died for disappointment, despair, depression. He died because he came in in compassion. And he said, I'm taking your place. But all of a sudden, he has compassion. He's about to destroy Jerusalem, and he has compassion. And he says, enough. Withhold your hands, stop. See, you ever wondered why in Luke chapter 19, verses 41, it says that as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he wept. Do you know why? Let me show you something really cool. Because why did Jesus stop the sword? Now watch this, this is is really cool, okay? If you actually will study this, Every time in the Old Testament, some people argue this, but there's one thing that they cannot argue. Every time it refers to the angel of the Lord, I believe that it's referring to the incarnate Christ. Before he came, It was he was still there. And so he was the angel of the Lord. And people say, well, how can you prove it? Because the angel of the Lord, when people bowed down to the angel of the Lord, they were never told to get up. But every other angel, when they bowed down, they said, no, 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 we're not him. Angels cannot receive worship. Angels are to give worship, but they cannot receive it. But this angel could have people bow down. Joshua, when he says it, he he says, what's your name? And he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And he says, and Joshua bowed down and he worshiped him. And he never said, get up. He says, you recognize who I am. So God sends the angel of the Lord to destroy Jerusalem. He has a sword. He's about to destroy it. Well, all of a sudden, he stops it. Why did Jesus approach the city in Luke 19, verse 41, and weep? Because, see, God doesn't have to go anywhere to get anywhere. He's 12 o'clock noon while being 12 o'clock midnight. He's there all the time. He was, is, and forever will be. Ready? But man was not. He had to allow time to catch up. He had to allow things to happen. And what really had to happen was he was behind the sword here. Now he had to take the place and stand in the gap. Why did Jesus have to come onto the earth? So that he, the sword of wrath, had to come down. Punishments for sin had to be fulfilled. But Jesus had to get himself into place. And so when he saw Jerusalem and wept, why did he weep? Because he saw the very city that he once was about to destroy was now going to allow to be destroyed to him, uh, be allowed to destroy him. He became the price. He became the sacrifice. The sword was still going to come down, but now it was going to come down on him instead of the city, instead of mankind. So it says that he has compassion. He took our place. Do you see this? The sword, he took our place. See, there is this sword over our cities. It's over our nations. It's about to come down. For we are a nation under God. But you know what's so crazy is us as a nation under God, we are trying to get out from underneath God. Do you know that right now in in the Supreme Courts, watch this, right now in the Supreme Courts, it's being argued to take in God we trust off of our money. Do you know right now it's in the Supreme Court to take one nation under God out of our Pledge of Allegiance? Do you know in New Mexico right now, they've changed the Pledge of Allegiance and they no longer say one nation under God, but they say one nation under your belief systems throughout public schools, throughout all of Albuquerque. Kids are getting, expended, uh, getting suspended if they say one nation under God. That's in America. You don't believe me? Watch. Go get your quarters. Some of you have started this whole new quarter collection. They're really cool. Go get an old quarter. Has George Washington facing the words, In God We Trust, over his head is liberty. Liberty represents freedom. Over his head represents his thought life. He's thinking about freedom, but he knows the only way to get freedom, true freedom, is to face God. The new quarters, guess what? And and on the back of the old quarters was one nation that was united. The United States of America. All of a sudden they said, no, 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 no. We're going to do our own thing. Let's get every state really cool. It could start a cool collection and give every state the ability to design their quarter. You know what so crazy is? As the quarters were beginning to be released, same-sex marriages were being released in those same states. And no longer one nation under God. No longer one united nation. But now it was about simply whatever we wanted to do according to our own state. That we could make our own laws. Look at the new quarter. As the separations of states have been on the back. Look at the new quarters. In God we trust is behind George Washington. He's facing the word liberty. And the United States is over his head. While he's chasing his liberties, he's turned his back on God and thinking about whether or not we should keep the United States united or not. Prophetic. Why do we need to pray like never before? It don't matter about Democrat or Republican. What what matters is, is the church has stopped crying out to God. You can show me how powerful, please hear me, you can show me how popular a preacher is. Show me how popular a church is by who shows up on Sunday morning. Show me how popular a preacher is by who shows up on Sunday night. Show me how popular, prayer, or how God, how popular God is, and I'll show you who shows up on prayer meetings. More people go to potlucks than to prayer meetings. Why? Because prayer meetings are not fun. We need, we have got to have a break of God. We have got to begin to rebuild the altars. And if we don't do it, it's not just us that are facing it. It's not about social security. It is about a generation. That since 1973, 55 million children have been killed in our nation. In thought of freedom. What are you talking about, preacher? David, David, he saw this take place before his very eyes. And God is looking for men and women. Why would God put it on your pastor's heart to call a prayer meeting and and go extended days? Because God is putting on the hearts of men and women that will rise up and say, Enough! Enough pornography! Enough adultery! Enough divorce! Enough alcoholism! Enough drug addictions! Enough suicide! Enough murder! Enough! 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 And until the church rises up and says, Enough! The sword is going to come down! that we can stand in the gap and say, God, in the midst of your wrath, remember mercy. See? But who will build an altar and begin to cry out enough? See, David there is there in the city, and God sends an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as he beholds the city, he is moved with compassion on it. James chapter 5 verses 11 says, The Lord is full of compassion. He halts the sword over the city while standing right above the threshing floor of Orna. What is a threshing floor? Listen to what a threshing floor is. A threshing floor is a place of separation to separate the seed from the plant or to strike repeatedly. Let me say that again. It is a place of separation where the seed is separated from the plant or to strike repeatedly. And God, the the angel of the Lord, is standing at this place of separation, this place of striking repeatedly. Sound familiar? Why does pastor keep preaching repentance? Because we keep sinning. How many times do I need to go down the altar over and over and over and we get struck and struck and struck until we are separated from the things that once separated us from God? See, David finally gets it. He, realize, he finally realizes that his sin is not just affecting him. But see, do we recognize and realize that we're one prayer away from releasing the hands of God to begin to move not only in our church but our families in our cities it reads right here in first chronicles chapter 21 verse 16 it goes on and it says and then David after seeing this angel stop and hearing God scream enough says then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel the Lord standing between earth and heaven he was caught up between heaven and earth having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over jerusalem so david and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces and david said to god was it not i who commanded the people to be numbered i am the one who has sinned and done this evil indeed for for but they are but sheep what have they done let your hand i pray o lord god be against me and my fa- my father's house but not against your people that they should be plagued any longer. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, still not talking to him, tell David that he should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word that Gad had spoken, which was spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw, listen to this, Ornan's working, he's threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him went and hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. Daddies, please hear me for something. We have taught our children how to work hard. Absolutely. We have taught them work ethic. We have taught them that if you got to work double overtime to make sure that your kids have something to eat and a house to live in and clothes to wear and cars to drive, that you do whatever it takes. But have we taught them how to fear God? He saw an angel with a sword over. He's standing over. He looks up. There he is with a sword. And he just keeps on working. And it goes on and it says... And the four sons went and hid themselves. Watch. Do you know that less than 4% of children under the age of 18 years old step foot in church? You know why? Because they know something's wrong with the picture. They see dad working, but they don't see, they're don't they looking out, but they're not looking up. And a generation is saying, listen, I don't want to just go through the motions. I can feel drugs. I can feel sex. I can feel alcohol. I can feel those things. Do you know that one out of six young ladies cut themselves? I don't mean to break your hearts, but some of your granddaughters and some of your children are cutting themselves. Just like the prophets of Baal that are crying out for somebody to hear them and nobody's hearing them. And they're saying, why go to church? It ain't changed you. Why should it change me? And they've hid themselves. Now watch what's scary about this whole story. Orna looks up and sees the angel. But keeps threshing wheat, his four sons who were with him, hid themselves. But Orna continued threshing wheat. So David came to Orna, and Orna looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed down before David. He feared man. He feared man. An angel had a sword over him, and he kept working. A king showed up, and he bowed down before him. And all of a sudden says then David said to Ornan grant me this place of your threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord that you shall grant it to me at full price that the plague on this of these children may be withheld from these people but Ornan said to David take it for yourself and let my lord the king do whatever is good in his eyes. Look, I will give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the, thre- the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. Then David, king David said to Ornan, No, I will, not sure- I will surely buy it at full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings, which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for that place. And David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and he answered him from heaven with fire on the altar of burnt offerings. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. I'm closing right here. Listen. So David went up in obedience to the word that the Lord had spoken to build an altar. So out of repentance, he falls forward to the altar. See, true repentance will always lead to true obedience. And delayed obedience is still truly disobedience. And David needs the threshing floor in order to get this plague off of these people. And Orna wants to give it to him along with all the sacrifices. But David says this, I will not give something to God that is not mine to give. Let me explain something. Nobody can worship God for you. Nobody can sacrifice for you. Not even the church. Not nobody. She can sing amazingly. But she cannot stand in the gap and sing for you. When you show up, if you don't, Worship God for yourself. You are missing. You could be in the house and still be absent from the presence. And David says, I will not give something to God that's not mine to give. You know what we're good at, church? Please hear me. We're good at, you pay the price, I'll sign the card. We look for bargains on, 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 on these sacrifices. There's no sales on sacrifices. It's full price. It's, it's all or it's nothing. See. So David buys the land and the sacrifices at full price. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is the act of offering something of worth and that is precious. The whole purpose behind sacrifice is that to give a sacrifice. It's saying, You mean more to me than anything or anyone. So he builds this altar and he, play, and he places down the sacrifice, and God answers him with fire. See, David knew that if he built it, he would come. Now, watch this. Church, what we've lost an art is how do we know when the altar's done? Because a pastor dismisses us. How do we know church is done? Why did we come? Just to hear a word and sing some songs and then as soon as we were released, we're like horses running? How is the How do you know when the altar call is done? When the sacrifice you've laid upon it is now burned up with the fire of God. Let me explain something. We need to get back to the place where the altars are dictated by the volume of the cries, not the volume of the toys. Do you know that the greatest instrument ever created is the human voice? And every other instrument is doing nothing more than trying to mock and clone what comes out of a human's body. And God says, listen... Turn off the instruments. I want to hear you. And all of a sudden, this groan begins to come back. We talked about it this morning, the groan, the altar. Because now you're laying down on, this, uh, on the altar as a living sacrifice. So God speaks to the angel and he tells him to put the sword away. This is going to sound crazy, but do you know that you have the potential to destroy darkness and wickedness and every weapon that's prevailing in your family's life by answering an altar call and praying until it ceases? We'll sit there and say, God, when are you going to do this? And God says, well, when are you going to do this? Pray fast, seek my face, and then I will hear from heaven. See, God says, I will do my part, but you've got to be willing to do your part too. And it says that he built this altar, he laid down a sacrifice, and the Lord responded, and he told the angel, Put your sword away. First Chronicles twenty one. Verses 28 through 30, it says, At this time David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. He sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offerings, which Moses had made was in the, was in the wilderness, were now at this time at the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword, the angel of the Lord. He was now, all of a sudden, something changed he had this healthy fear of God. He wasn't afraid of God, he had a fear of knowing who God was. He was afraid to move. You ever walked I believe a time is coming. I've only been to a few services. Please hear me. When you have to tiptoe out of the sanctuary because God's presence is so thick in the room. You don't want to say nothing, you don't want to move because God's there. And you're crippled. Not with a fear I'm afraid of God. And God begins to speak and people begin to weep and lives begin to change. I believe that God is about to reestablish his glory on the face of the earth and he's looking for churches to do it in that will make room for him. And it says this. Now watch, this is where it gets really cool. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. David says something. He's standing at this altar. He's just watched all this stuff take place. What's the one thing that David wanted to do more than anything else? What was the one thing David really wanted to do for God as a favor? To build him a temple, right? It's in his heart. I want to build a temple for God to live in. At that place of separation, it even separated him from what he, his desires but he said these words, and read it with me in First Chronicles 22, verses 1. It says, and David said, the house of the Lord God and this altar is to be where this altar is of burnt offerings for Israel. He said, where I built an altar, you're to build the temple. Now watch. Flip with me to Second Chronicles chapter 3. Verses 1. How many have ever made a mistake before? Made a mistake? I've made a lot of them. David had a huge mistake. He had an adulterous affair. Ended up killing one of his best friends because of this affair to try to cover up this affair. Ended up losing the baby from this affair. But married this woman. Ended up having another baby who was not the rightful king. But God made him king anyway by the name of Solomon. What happens when God turns your mistakes into victories? The one thing David wanted to do was build a temple. To build a temple. And it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 says, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. Go ahead and grab the piano. Go ahead and jump on it. Do your thing.